This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'd like to introduce uh, Professor Brian Schmidt, the Vice-Chancellor and President of the Australian National University. Uh, he's recently announced that he will be stepping down at the end of the year. That um, probably makes him feel delighted, but others feel nervous. But uh, Brian has been a remarkable Vice-Chancellor and education leader uh, during the time, both as a Vice-Chancellor, but also as, as a scholar. So Brian, welcome and thank you for agreeing to talk to me today. Yes. Um, I asked people to bring an object that represented their, um, uh, what drives them, what sustains them as a leader and, and as, a, as a learner. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing what uh, you're going to share with us today. Uh, all right. Well, I mean, it's kind of an interesting uh, abstract uh, thing, but I'm going to choose something maybe you don't expect. <laughs> so I'm, I mean, this is my bottle of one of my a wine. Right. Right. So and, and a Pinot's. It's a Pinot Noir made from my vineyard and winery. And that's because um, life needs to be in balance. And as an academic, uh, I find myself and people around me having their lives completely overrun by their field. Uh, and I find being able to sit and contemplate things uh, across life and keeping that balance is really important for me mm -hmm. to continue a sustained pace that is a little crazy. Uh, and I do that by having something meaningful beyond the academy. And that's a really important part. And that's a very close relationship with my family, activities uh, that you know take up a substantial amount of time. But as when I was interviewing for my job, I know how many hours a week I can work as uh, at my job, and I still have a lot of time to do things like make wine along the way. So why Pinot? Pinot Noir is, uh, is the place of Canberra. So Canberra is a cool place uh, climatically uh, by Australian standards, even by world standards. So the Pinot Noir was chosen because it's the right temperature really where I live to make it. It's Things have warmed up a lot in the last uh, 23 years since I planted. So I have a little bit of Shiraz Viognier planted now, um, but it's pretty cool. Uh, grapes are just turning color right now. And that means we're gonna be picking probably in the middle of April. And we get frost about the middle of April. So it's gonna be, it's a balance. If you get the wrong variety, you don't get to pick them. So just if we can unpack that that balance a bit more. so. When you're walking through the vineyards, are you able to, what, do you have thinking time or is it just time away from work and you're doing physical work? No, I, I actually use it as my time to think. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used to always say my best thoughts were in the shower where you can just completely disconnect and think. 
but the vineyard is very, very similar, except for, you know, when you're out spraying your grapes or something, it's a couple hours. And so I think about lots of things, but it is where I get my creative ideas of the problems, you know, that I'm thinking about, whether it be astronomy or running the university, because it gives you the, the clarity, that ability to just kind of get rid of all the distractions and mm -hmm. let new ideas seep in and out. And it's a sort of a zen-like state that, that new ideas filter in. Indeed. And, and having, having those new ideas that might not have come if you'd had the constant interruptions. Yeah, or I need to think, I need to think, I need to think. So this is something where it's almost dreamlike. It just allows creativity to flow. Very important mm. for me, at least. So can you talk to us about what, what university was like for you both as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate? Yeah, so I went off to the University of Arizona. I grew up in Alaska and Montana in the United States, but, you know, Alaska, very cold state, Arizona, very hot state. Uh, and I hadn't quite figured out how, what a rough shock it was going to be to go sort of 40 degrees Celsius warmer in temperature. Uh, I arrived at university, not, I wouldn't say I completely knew what to expect. Uh, it was a lot more sex, drugs, and rock and roll than I was probably expecting, if I can be honest. Uh, I was a, a very good student at high school. I wasn't the best ever. And then I, when I got to university, even though I was much bigger, I was quite focused on my studies and I became like the best student, you know? So I kind of went, you know, sort of number three and 400 in my high school to number one and 4,000 in my university. Uh, so I worked hard. I, socially, I, I struggled a little bit, especially the first couple of years um, at university, but I did very, very well at my academics. Uh, that allowed me to get into many graduate schools. I ended up visiting places and choosing Harvard, not so much because of Harvard's reputation, because in astronomy, it wasn't actually that good uh, in 1989 when I did this. But because when I went there, I met a whole bunch of people who I really got on with, and I didn't quite have that same experience in the other places I visited that had better reputations. And that was because Harvard's reputation was on the way up, and reputation's always kind of five-year lag on reality uh, or, or more. So I showed up at Harvard, and I just loved it from day one. I met all these people uh, from all sorts of disciplines that I found incredibly interested all over the world, met my wife uh, and, and had a, a truly outstanding experience, right? And not, not a silver spoon elite experience, a deep academic experience. That is a model of what I want to provide students here at ANU. So can you, can you elaborate on that, that sort of uh, experience that you had and then what you've tried to uh, implement at ANU? Well, you know, the people at Harvard are, you know, they're not that different than people at other universities, but the experience is immersive and it's very, it brings surprisingly a very diverse group of people together from different backgrounds. They really do support people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, people from different countries. Uh, and it's, it's got a scale, which isn't huge. So you're part of a community. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was that learning with a diverse group of people and, you know, professors, yeah, you get to meet and see them, but it's also being able to meet and talk to, to 
interesting scholars from around the world. So ANU um, has a scale very similar to Harvard. You know, it has a few, a couple thousand fewer undergraduates than us. I think there are about 7,000 undergraduates. We're about 9,000. Uh, there are 23,000 total. We're sort of 19,000 total. So it's a very similar scale university. Um, we have a bigger campus than Harvard does, actually. Uh, and our students here are on campus. They're not commuters. Mm -hmm. So especially that first couple years, we're able, whether or not you're a postgraduate or an undergraduate, to get that culture going of intersection. We have 100 nations at ANU. So really try to emphasize these things where we have a human scale of high interaction between a diverse group of people. And that's what I'm trying to retain. You know, all of the, um, I guess, the, the policies in higher education is to massify, massify, massify. Um, you know, if you can keep uh, use your, your, your campus four times and make sure students don't spend very much time there uh, to maximize its use. That's, that's seen as something efficient to do. And it, it's efficient in some parameter space and it's, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable way for some universities to go. We want education to be uh, accessible to all. But we, I think, need a, at least one university like ANU in Australia where we can go in and really create these interdiscipline leaders um, that I think the world needs going forward. You don't need huge numbers of them, but we certainly need some. And in many respects, with your desire to keep ANU small, there were associated risks and challenges. Well, and uh, those risks and challenges really uh, were paid out during COVID. So whereas other universities in the sector had uh, rapidly increased, even in 2019 and 2020, their international student cohort to run very large surpluses, they would have run very, very large surpluses. Uh, they went from very, very large surpluses to you know, moderate surpluses or moderate deficits. Uh, at ANU, because we didn't do that, because um, we, we sort of capped our numbers 2018, 2019. So in 2020, instead of falling from a huge amount of growth, we fell from actually kind of a small decline that was intentional to get our numbers at about 19,500. Uh, so financially, although I had what would have been considered the best balance sheet in 2019, uh, that balance sheet is uh, its good. It was as strong as it was because it's been a very tough last couple of years. And it's interesting to see the reaction. I mean, that was my call at some level, but it was highly supported by the staff and students at ANU. And no one, I have not once been criticized for making that call, despite the financial <laughs> hardship, because people still want that here. They still want it. And they're trying to figure out how can we keep it in the new financial reality, that's 2023. I speak to friends who are graduates of the ANU and you know, long, long graduates of, of some years ago, and they all speak very warmly and fondly of their experience at the ANU. And it, it, I think it was because it was not a commuter campus, that it was on-campus experience. What's, what's your sort of commitment to an on-campus experience that might not be possible in a more, you know, Metropolitan uh, University? Well, it comes down to um, not having people just hang out with the same old people they went to high school with. That's the first thing. 
And that means having, uh, you know, the ANU, for example, undergraduate population used to be Canberra dominant, even when I started. It's now 15% Canberra. 85% of our undergraduates don't come from Canberra. There is no other campus bar maybe bond like that in Australia. And so you have these people from every state and territory, from lots of backgrounds. I mean, we're not as socioeconomically diverse as I would like, but we're very, we're diverse in almost any other um, category. And so if you're going to have that, that group of people, you want them to meet and interact with people. And that means living together. We have 6,500 spaces on campus uh, and getting people to live and interact with people means you really get to appreciate and meet people. It's not superficial. It's a real meeting and friendships and, you know, life partners and all sorts of things emerge from that. But it also um, connects to our staff. So because I have a smaller student base, I have a smaller staff base. And as a vice chancellor, that means I have a good knowledge of every part of the university. I know a very large number of our staff, and I know actually a lot of our students, and that cohort doesn't fragment. So when you get to a certain size, university campus fragment into kind of bits and pieces where people just don't know each other. And if you're going to do this you know, intradisciplinary, transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary work, you really don't want that fragmentation. You need to try to bring it together. And so both the student and the staff, I think, are at that, that bit where they don't really fragment. It really works as a cohesive unit. And my students, instead of, and I have heard this from uh, children of, of my staff members or at other universities, where they play a game to minimize the amount of time they have to spend on campus, as part of their degree, that's not, does that does not happen here, right? And when, you know, when COVID finished up and we ask our students, uh, how many of you uh, really want to go back to kind of the way it was before, or do you want to have, you know, enhanced online? 98% of them said they wanted to go back to the old way on campus in person. Now, getting them to show up to to lectures and stuff still remains a bit of a, a feature uh, for everyone, uh, but I think we've done better in that than most places have. And what I see is my campus, especially last year, you know, just had much better attendance than other campuses, both of staff and students. And that just, it gives you this wonderful sense of community, of belonging. Uh, that's just really a special time for people who get it during their university that I did get, especially at Harvard. And I want to have, I, I just, it's just the most amazing time when it's right. And I want to share that with as many people as I can. You've also invested a lot of money in improving the infrastructure. So there, there is reason for students to come on campus. There are, you know, beautiful new buildings, um, student spaces that are, are remarkable. And so there is a reason to come on campus, not only for learning, but for that sort of social stickiness as well. So how do you, how do you, how do you sustain that social stickiness? Yeah, well, making sure our campus is, is quite an unusual campus by world standards. I mean, I can't actually think of any other campus quite like ours. It's It has that feeling of a campus of serenity, but it is in a very informal bush setting, right square smack in the middle of Canberra, six minutes from Parliament House. So, you know, there's not anything else like it. So it is a big campus. 
uh, that has many places to be reflective, but then what we have managed to do, and, and this goes to Ian Young, my successor who started this, uh, this push, and he was absolutely right, is you need to create um, buildings and places that naturally bring people together, give you that stickiness. Uh, and you can't just have everyone spread out evenly over the 150 hectares of campus. You want to have them have a reason to come in, and that means having activities, places to eat, uh, uh, classes, you know, big classrooms right square in the middle, and now we actually have a residence right square in the middle. Nothing like having 500 uh, students right in the middle of your campus to give it some life. And so we now have, when I, you know, go into the center of campus, uh, it it's, has all sorts of students. It's been opened up, not just to our students, but to the community around it. So University Ave, originally designed by, you know, in 1915 by the Burley Griffins uh, to be an axis, is now an axis. You can look from the center of Canberra, right, literally the center of Canberra, uh, and look right down for more than a kilometer to Bruce Hall, where we end and go into Silo. Mm -hmm. And that is a place that brings people from all of the government buildings and other buildings on the edge of campus to come in and use our campus as well. Uh, so made it easy. There's always parking now underneath campus. That's a big problem. Well, we now have a commercial, so it's not super cheap, but it means if you want to come to an event, you know, there's a place for you to park. And you don't have to muck around. So I think all of those things are really important. Those uh, music events, art events, social events, just continually happening. And we let the students have big license. You know, we have, I think, as, as many or more student societies than any other university in Australia, despite being one of the smallest universities in Australia. So that student agency and autonomy is really important. At the end of the year, you'll leave that office that I've sat in a few times. And you'll go back to being a researcher and an academic and teacher, yep. something that publicly you've said you're really looking forward to. So tell me a bit about yourself as, as a teacher and as, a, as, a, as an academic. What, what drives you? What sustains you? And what, what do you want to do when you're free of the shackles of having university dinners to attend? Mm. I'm sure I'll still get to go to some dinners, but probably not quite as many. Uh, okay, so I, I guess I see uh, that interaction between my research pursuits and my teaching pursuits being very much overlapping. All right, and this is an important thing. Uh, ANU is a research intensive teaching institution, not just by name. We actually, and I insist that my researchers teach and they don't have to teach a lot here, but they are supposed to teach well. And that is one of the things we're working on. So in my own uh, research, of course, I'm focused on cosmology. And there are some amazing uh, discoveries that have occurred in the last seven years. James Webb Space Telescope's out there. The discovery of gravitational waves, which is an area of interest to me, uh, are there. And so I, I've already got figured out the project I want to do, which is related to uh, things I know and love before I started. And the good news is I've been able to stay connected to the field enough that I have a pretty clear vision of what I can do next. But I've also had as a vice chancellor a chance to see in a way I don't think anyone else gets the privilege to every part, every discipline, 
and to connect across what I would describe as societal problems. And that uses some of the stuff I know in astronomy and data analytics and technology, but it also uses the stuff I've learned in the humanities and what you know their real strengths are around uh, climate change, around First Nations issues. And so for teaching, I'm sure I'll do astronomy, straight up astronomy in my silo, but I'm really keen to create what I would describe as a course that brings the university together. It uses those networks I have with people around the country, around the world, uh, to interweave, uh, I would say, everything you need to know about modern Australia alongside uh, the issues around First Nations. So I describe it as sort of, if you can remember, if you've ever read Moby Dick, Moby Dick is two stories. They're kind of one chapter, one chapter. And so what I want to try to is to weave in modern Australia, both from our First Nations and then what I would describe as the, the, the disciplines of, uh, of the university. And then go out and ask, as part of the assessment, uh, students from all sorts of colleges to come together and solve multidisciplinary problems. So trying to get out there and simultaneously have a really interesting lecture. So people want to come to lecture and meet the most impressive people there are I can find in the world, listen to them, and then learn with their colleagues uh, and in their own discipline area to come up with um, solutions or proposed solutions to hard problems. So for example, how might we uh, work with First Nations Australians uh, to help solve uh, or to meet Australia's uh, 2050 uh, net zero commitment. That would be uh, the type of thing that you, you, you might have as an assignment. And it sounds very open and hard, but you know that's, that's what the problems we need to solve. And I wanna get people starting to think about that. And who knows what will come out of you know, several hundred ANU students, you might get some quite interesting ideas. And will there be a cap on that class? Uh, well, my, I would love to fill up Llewellyn Hall, which takes 1,350. I would love to do that. And I'm building it so that, that my intent is to be able to scale it up to the largest classroom we have. So I want it to be personal. And Llewellyn Hall, we are lucky, is a great place. No, it's this holds 1,350 beautiful acoustics, uh, thanks to a hailstorm that meant we had to fix it. Uh, but I can, you can talk without a microphone in Llewellyn Hall and everyone can hear you in all 1,350 seats. So it's a beautiful spot. So I want to do that, but we'll use Enhance with lots of technologies for interactivity. And then we're going to break into groups, uh, uh, which will bring, of course, these people from all sorts of backgrounds together uh, in tutorials to go through and, and work through different assessment. And indeed, I think there will, I, I want to try to have two assessment streams, this project work, mm -hmm. and then uh, kind of have three streams in quantitative, qualitative, and creative mm -hmm. that were assessed for in people's uh, areas of discipline. And, and I would expect people to do this in kind of the third year after they've got their toolkit up a bit. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that sounds very exciting. I'm looking forward. I, I'm really excited about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's um that's that's solving the world's problems. And it's well, the I students it, who are contributing to to that. And and we want people to be able to work in you know complex problems, you know, in complexity, 
critical thinking, transdisciplinary. Uh, and so I think being able to do that and then at the same time embed a much deeper understanding of First Nations issues told first person by the leaders of uh, Australia's First Nations people and maybe some from overseas as well. I, do, I don't know, just, it's kind of the class I wished I could have. So I'm designing the class I wish I could have. Can we go back to your, your experience? And you said that you were a, a very diligent, focused student, but were there, were there some opportunities that you took advantage of that then helped you both in your study and in your careers? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, at the end of my first year, uh, at Arizona. Arizona had an exceptionally strong astronomy department, and I was interested in doing astronomy, and I just walked in and started talking to people and said, is there anything I can do? And they were like, uh, okay, this is a little weird. Uh, this is not something normal people, it's quite done quite often now, but it was, I was sort of a pathbreaker. And so one of the groups there said, I've got a project for you to work. So I worked for free for the first semester, and then he felt guilty and said, oh, I need to pay you. That was good. Uh, and I stuck with that group. And, you know, that work and research probably what helped me get into um, all the places I did. But I mean, I had good grades and then I had that. And that was really important. It was entirely self-motivated. And it was I, I did it entirely because I was interested. It wasn't, you know, pre-planned. I didn't know it would help get me into university. I did it. Uh, because I, I just wanted to do something like that. And it, it taught me that, you know, the staff of a university, there's nothing that they love more than a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed undergraduate or postgrad who just wants to get in and learn. And, you know, that's one of the things that light up a university. I cannot understate why it is important to have students because they they challenge professors and they they get us to think about the future rather than the past. Mm -hmm. So, so my, just refocusing really into the present, um, a new government, new challenges, but uh, AI also bringing new challenges to issues around assessment. So what, what do you think the major challenges that universities will be facing in the, in the short and the midterm? Well, in the short term, uh, I think we, you know, there's, I guess there's a question around Australia and the rest of the world. So in Australia, it's about having a conversation with government about what the, the role of universities are. And I think there, it, there has to be something simultaneously about doing outstanding education uh, for Australians and future Australians and people of our region. Uh, and But the part that's really missing is research. Um, for whatever reason, there has become over the last 15 or 20 years, a disconnect of the importance of research in a university. And I think a lot of that is because uh, of the, I guess, the glorification of entrepreneurs. And there is somehow a disconnect that entrepreneurs actually use university research uh, largely to make all the cool things that make them billionaires. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that the heroes were the university professors. You know, Mark Oliphant, he was, you know, 
the person who realized nuclear bombs could be made. Uh, and I guess that makes him both a hero and a villain, but you know, an incredibly important part. He is the person who launched the Manhattan Project, and he was one of the founding professors of ANU. Uh, and so those people were the heroes. Now we're disintermediated by business. And that doesn't mean that the work we do is none the more important. It's probably even more important. But I, I guess the people and therefore the elected politicians somehow think that because universities aren't creating the products directly, that we're actually wasting people's money. And so I really do worry that Australia and Australia is, is the worst offender of, of advanced economies right now, the worst offender. No one's doing it worse than us uh, at uh, squeezing um, the sovereign research capability uh, of the nation. And, and that's, you know, uh, slowing us down. Uh, just, just as a little thought around that, we have gone and I really focused on making sure we translate the knowledge into things where it's possible. And we've gone from, you know, a few startups, one or two startups a year to eight or 10 now. But I'm at the point now, and these, these startups are going places. They're getting millions, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them. And, you know, I was talking to uh, someone important and they're saying, oh, we need to get you more venture. And I'm like, I don't need more venture. I've got enough. What I don't have is enough basic research actually to create the very valuable, I, I've kind of tapped it now. And I'm putting out startups for how much money is spent here about at the same rate as anywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's going to really squeeze Australia's future unless we get it right. Now, so that's, that's just research and getting that right. I think there is a more foundational issue longer term where universities get uh, essentially um, have their business model destroyed. And we're going to have our business model destroyed, at least a lot of us, because uh, people are going to be more short term focused on skills. I'm going to go through and instead of doing a computer science degree at a university for you know four years, I'm going to do six months with a you know AWS, Microsoft, Google skills thing. And I will get a, a great job because there's a, a shortage uh, in that area. Uh, and I could easily see us losing a whole bunch of people um, of our student base. Now, I still think a university like ANU that provides this intense experience that, quite frankly, uh, the Google experience is just different. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something different. I'm offering an alternative. Mm -hmm. That is distinctly different, the on-campus experience and, and highly interactive with campus. But most universities in Australia are not. And so I think there's a big ecosystem threat where we have a whole bunch of universities have their lunch eaten by for-profits uh, that are going to lower the cost curve down to very low number, uh, low, very, you know, make it very cheap uh, of just providing the education people want right now. And so unless we go through and say, what's our value proposition to future students and say, what are you going to get by coming to our university that you're not going to get from Google? 
uh, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And that all that, those student activities right now cross-subsidize, uh, and again, Australia is quite unique in this place, cross-subsidize our research activities. Mm-hmm. So because we don't pay for research the way normal countries do by actually paying for the research, uh, we pay for it through cross-subsidies from students. And in Australia, it's not domestic students, it's international students. I do worry we could have a huge crunch onto the sector uh, by these, these forces. So talking about a, a new generation of students, how, how then, I mean, what would you change anything to make campus life more attractive and for them to come to spend four years of their life rather than six months at Google with really just a work placement where they learn, will learn specific skills? Well, I mean, I'm, the reason ANU has gone a different way than everywhere else is precisely because I want to be uh, giving the students an alternative that looks different, interesting, allows them to grow up. You know, these, these kids are 17, 18 when they start and they're still kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're a chance for them to gain their independence and to, you know, develop as independent adults. So I actually feel pretty confident in my value proposition, but I'm, I'm worried about the, the sector value proposition. And this has been, you know, largely, uh, you know, evolved out of government policy. It's, you know, uh, I think other universities, a lot of them would like to be like me, but it's just not possible based on this, the settings of where they're from. So I do think, you know, to my mind, it's making sure it's a research-led education and that people are getting more than what they can get from a purely digital six-month process. And so uh, I really have focused the way I know how to do it. And it's kind of old school. Uh, if I were, you know, in a in a university that has lots of students, I would be thinking Arizona State, you know, massification, doing it extraordinarily well, and probably rather than being eaten by Google, partnering with Google and saying, let's do this together. So I think there's going to be stuff like that that happens, mm-hmm. but I could easily see us losing 15 or 20 universities over the next 20 years in uh, a place like Australia, just Mm -hmm. due to the number of people who go to a university like ANU probably doesn't need to be 40% of the population, uh, but uh, what happens to those other places and what happens to then the research capacity of of, of the country. So just nearly in closing, in 10 months time, There'll be a day where you get up from your desk, the desk is cleared, you close the door, and you move on to the next phase of your life. What will will that be like for you? And what do you think your legacy will be for the ANU? Well, it's going to be weird um, because uh, I've been doing this and it's, you know, I, I chose to do this job in 2015. At least I put my hand up for it and was chosen. Because I felt that this mission of ANU that I've just described, of it being a human-sized campus, and research-intensive, excellence at everything we do, and if we're not excellent, don't do it, I thought that was being lost, and I could see us becoming a university that ended up looking like mo- pretty much every other university in Australia. And 
you know, my life as an astronomer is not supported up at Mount Stromlo by that university. My life is supported because ANU is stated a size and can support a small number of staff like me who do things like cosmology. So it was kind of an existential for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I really wanted to get ANU to focus on what is our mission and our vision and how are we different than everywhere else and how are we the national university because the thing that allows us to be small, and I'm putting it out there, is the National Institute grant. Mm-hmm. If you take away the National Institute grant, ANU will shrink by a lot more than that National Institute grant. We leverage that, I think, for the good of Australia, the good of our students, very large. So we would become just a regional university. And there's nothing wrong. We need regional universities, but I think Australia needs the ANU. So my legacy, I think, is that the students and the staff here have bought in to us having, being the national university and being different than the rest of the sector, being a a human scale research university of excellence that really focuses on the things that Australia needs that, you know, are just not necessarily done in the rest of the sector. So when I finish, I think I will leave, I mean, I, I looked at my job application in 2015 and I was like, actually, I've more or less done everything I said I was going to back in 2015. I mean, they're not completed, but well on the way. So I think I will leave, quite frankly, uh, very proud, but exhausted. The, the challenge is you get the best job in the world of being able to take 20,000 amazing people and set them on their way and help them do amazing things. And then you've got 20,000 people's worth of, of human resources issues, tragedy, all those things. And those come with a big burden. And COVID, of course, made it much worse. You know, we had to downsize by 473 people. And uh, you know, I, I feel each one of those, even though they were almost all voluntary redundancies, I feel each one of those. And so mm-hmm. it will be one of, I think, pride, but as I said, exhaustion and a knowledge that um, it's time to turn over, um, I guess, the, the keys to the next person because I, I have more or less done what I, I wanted to do. And I see myself now looking to protect what I have done rather than what's next. And that's when you know it's time to hand over to the next person so that their vision uh, will be front of mind to them and they will do bring keep the university at the leading edge. Brian, thank you for your time today. And I hope that um, when you leave, you'll find solace and recovery by walking and working with the grapes. Indeed. Not, not imbibing in them too much, but, but enjoying them. Moderation in all things. Thank you. And um, I probably will see you at the uh, Universities Australia conference next week. Yes, look forward to seeing you there. Take care and hope you're well. Thank you very much. Bye. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.